U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and over there with his new fangled pet, Steven. Yeah, you know, guys, I thought about getting uh, a new mascot for the ship. You know, uh, Christopher the Cricket. He seemed kind of cute, kind of adorable. And then he got loose, and I can't track the bastard down. So, if you hear some uh, cricket chirping, that's just Christopher saying hi until I find him and teach him a lesson. So, while our XO slowly goes insane, we're going to go ahead and finish off the Mexican-American War. We're going to be concentrating on the Mosquito Fleet. No, not the Cricket Fleet? No, not the Cricket Fleet. They, they called it the Mosquito Fleet. Okay. So I got the wrong mascot to boot. Yep. You should have a mosquito sucking the blood out of your arm right now. You know what? I'm kind of glad I got the cricket instead. Okay. Ready to get underway? Let's cast off. All right. So the first one up is the first battle of Tuxpan. So after the fall of Veracruz, we have Commander Matthew C. Perry. And he is the commander of the home squadron. He decided he was going to move against all of the remaining port cities along the Gulf Coast. All of the ports, only two remain, which are Tuxpan and Tabasco. So the battle, the Mosquito Fleet had a landing party of 1,519 men. Wow, how many ships were in the fleet? We don't know. Hmm, I mean, if they have that many for just the landing party, I imagine they have to be having almost half a dozen or so. Well, yeah, remember, this is called a fleet, not the mosquito boat. <laughs> Excellent point. So they move against Tuxpan, which is garrisoned by 400 soldiers under General Martin Perfecto de Cos. And so he comes up there to the mouth of the river on April 17th. They go up the river, and the next afternoon... While Winfield Scott was fighting Santa Ana at Ciro Gordo, Perry leaves a detachment downriver and then leads the rest of the landing party upriver to secure the rest of Tuxpin. Now, there was very little resistance from General Koss, and he decided, you know what, I'm going to nope out of here at 3 p.m., I mean, if three-to-one odds are hedging bets in your favor, almost four-to-one odds, yeah, that's not going to go well. So, yeah. So Perry, you know, he sits there for about four days, and then he's like, I'm bored. Let's go upriver some more. And so he gets back in his boats and goes further upriver. But he leaves two of them to blockade the city. And that's the end of the first battle. That wasn't a that wasn't a battle. That was a leisurely river cruise. Well, I mean, there are some casualties. There was three killed and eleven wounded on the U.S. side, and a fort damaged, and an unknown number of casualties on the other side. So there was a little bit of fighting. Okay, so yeah, a little bit of fighting, but for a lot of them, just. Relatively straightforward, get on the boat, sail off, show up. 
Yeah. So that was the uh, first battle. You want to hear about the second one? Uh, the same thing all over again, minus a few guys who were wounded. Well, while we don't know the exact date, pretty much the exact same thing happened. <laughs> On the U.S., we lost one KIA and six wounded. And we have no idea how many other people were hurt. So this time they continued the blockade and they continued occupying it until the third battle of Tuxpin. This we know occurred on June 30th. And that's pretty much all we know other than casualty rates. So all we know for the second battle of this fort, there were U.S. forces. There were Mexican forces. We can only assume some shots were fired because there were casualties reported. And then the battle was over. Yep. And this time we know that two were killed, five were wounded on the American side, but we have no idea how many on the other side. We do know that four of the American wounded were caused by a gunpowder barrel explosion, but we don't know how that happened. Folks, this is your exit reminding you, please put out cigarettes when you're in the ammo depot. Never in this time. Everybody smoked. Okay, well, you know what? It's your funeral. So now we're going to move on to the first battle of Tabasco. Was it spicy? Mild? It's always spicy. We know a little bit more about this one. We know that the battle was part of the home fleet's efforts to blockade the Mexican ports in the Gulf of Mexico. Now... Matthew Perry, he leads a detachment of seven vessels along the coast of the Mexican state of Tabasco. He arrives at the Tabasco River on October 22nd, and he seizes the town of Frontera and two of their ships. He leaves a small garrison behind him, and he takes the rest of his troops towards the city of San Juan Batista. He arrives there on October 24th, and... He takes another five vessels. The governor at the time was Colonel Juan Batista Traconis. And he took a look at his people, took a look at Perry coming up, and fled. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is I, your noble Colonel Governor. I know things seem hopeless right now and the Americans are coming, but I want to promise you, I won't be here to help solve this problem. Adios. Now, he does come back with his forces that night, and they barricade themselves inside of buildings. <laughs> okay, you know they were just partying it up and drinking all the liquor before the Americans showed up to drink the liquor instead. Oh, the Americans are already there. They, they snuck into it. They snuck back into the city. What, 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 time out. You, you leave the city to avoid the invading Americans. And then you come back with, with an army, with soldiers, and instead of trying to liberate your city from foreign occupants, your thought is, what if we got into our homes and just locked the door? Yep. Military genius, folks. I, I did not see that one coming. So the U.S. Marines under Commodore Perry... They send a delegation to Colonel Governor and requests their surrender. Would you like to know what he said in response? 
I'm sorry, I'm not home right now, but if I see him, I'll pass the message along. Nope. Quote, Tell Commodore Perry I would sooner die with my garrison than handing over this place. You literally ran. And then snuck back? And snuck back. But either, either he's an idiot or he is a mad genius operating on, you know, master levels of tactical brilliance that I cannot comprehend. Or there's a third option. His troops made fun of him while they were away, and that made him need to come back to save face. You know what? I think that Cricket just agreed with you. Okay. So, Perry, he realizes that the only way to drive these guys out is to bombard the city. So, he withdraws his forces to prepare them for the bombardment. So, on the morning of October 26th, his troops prepare to launch their assault. And the Mexican forces, they don't run away this time. They start firing. So the U.S. troops, they begin to bombard the town. We know that the flagpole of the Mexican headquarters was shot and fell through the roof. And that's the real casualty of this battle. Well, see, the Americans thought this was them surrendering. Oh, no. So they stop firing and they send a delegation in. But the colonel commander, he gives the exact same answer. And sends them back. And then while they're walking back to Commodore Perry, they fix the flagpole <laughs> and put it onto the church tower. And then once that happens, they start firing at each other again until that evening. Well, that was positively cordial of them. Oh, you, you thought we were... No, no, you, you guys just hit the flagpole like a bunch of idiots. But um, I can see why that may have caused a mix-up. No. Uh, war's still on. We'll move that and fix it. You know, we'll resume in 20? Okay, we'll resume in 20. So, the day ends and Perry decides, well, we didn't get the city today. Let's go. And they leave and go back to Frontera and establishes a new naval blockade. So, with the exception of the Fort Flagpole, sacrifice will always be remembered. What were the casualties of this battle? We have those recorded as, on the U.S. side, two killed, two wounded, and the two that were killed were drowned. But there's a river right there. I, I suppose. And on the Mexican side, 50 KIA Oof. and wounded. Oof. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure what kind of defenses that fort had, but bombardment from uh, the river versus probably fixed cannons on the fort if they had artillery to begin with, that is not a great discrepancy in their favor. Yeah. So that will bring us to the second Battle of Tabasco. So Perry receives reports that the colonel governor was strengthening the city's defenses and building obstructions in the Tabasco River. So Perry brings his mosquito fleet back in June and starts going towards the town. All right. He's towing 47 boats and carrying 
1,173 men for a landing force. So when you say he's towing that many boats, so are these, you know, sailing vessels designed for ocean use that are then just towing a bunch of, like, uh, flatbed craft that are designed to go up river? They're probably his small mosquito fleet towing barges. Oh, okay, okay. So they, of course, since they're towing all this stuff, this fleet goes slowly up the river. And they encounter Mexican snipers. Oh, that's that's a lot of trouble, actually. Yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't seem we received any casualties for that, so it's probably just... Oh, look, snipers. Keep going. <laughs> so one of those cases of the records say snipers, but with absolutely no casualties, likely ranchers and peasants conscripted and told, here's a gun, shoot in that direction. Yeah. They continue on, and they run into another ambush. But they just kept plowing on, and they did not really have any difficulty with that one either. So they come to Devil's Bend. Remember us talking about Devil's Bend? No, I, I don't recall you bringing up Devil's Bend before. Well, your cricket sure does. Yeah, no, I, yeah, Christopher certainly remembers it, but I'm drawing a blank. Well, it's an S-curve in the river. Oh, okay, now, now my memory's being jogged. Ah. There is a river fortification there. It is called the Colmina Redoubt. We've talked about this one a little bit before. Yep. And they were taking fire from there. And they just kept on going? Well, this time they used their naval guns. Ooh, it's a serious problem. And the forces there quickly disperse. Muskets versus cannon. Mm-hmm. Very good against, you know, stuff that isn't artillery, but... They probably didn't design that fort with the intention of holding it against, you know, an actual navy. Well, they probably didn't expect an actual navy. That's true. It is a river. Yeah. So, this is where they come upon those obstructions in the river that I was talking about earlier. So, they have to anchor out and they start investigating them, see if they can be removed easily or whatnot. Maybe blow them up so they can keep going. And there's snipers. We do have a casualty now. A lieutenant. He was wounded. So Perry had a decision. We could keep trying to remove these obstructions under sniper fire. Or we can just land here. Hmm. He landed here. And he goes to march against the city over land. So... This is a good example of naval artillery clearing the beaches before landing his troops. Because that's what they do. They opened and bombard the shore before landing the landing party. And he also takes four artillery pieces with him for good measure. <laughs> so he leaves a skeleton crew and a Lieutenant David D. Porter to command the vessels in his stead. And they start marching. Now, they've only been going up and down the river, so they really have no idea what they're going to encounter on land as they go against this march. So they find a stronger 
defensive fortification that was called Fort Achachpan, with 600 troops under a Colonel Claro Hidalgo. Okay, yeah, that actually sounds like a serious problem for once so far this episode. So, Perry, he sets up his artillery and shells them. And after a while, he orders a charge with him at the forefront of it, sword in hand. Oh, I like this guy a little more now, actually leading by example. Now, this scared the ever-living crap out of the Mexicans that manned that fort, and they fled, leaving behind their breakfasts uneaten. Okay, so the American forces got to enjoy some most likely cold huevos rancheros, and took the fort relatively easily, it sounds like. Yeah. So, while this was happening, Lieutenant Porter kept going with the river obstructions, trying to get destroy them and pull them out and whatnot. And he is successful. So, there's a, there's a funny little thing here that while Perry was approaching that that fort, yeah, Lieutenant Porter, he made a mistake. Oh boy. He thought the Americans were Mexicans and opened fire. Oh no. But quickly they realized their mistake and ceased fire. I'm really hoping the shots fell short or overshot. Well, there is there is no mention of casualties, so I'm assuming that they just a rogue wave made them miss. One of those cases of a volley is set off, maybe two, and the Americans are like, oh, oh, guys, raise that flag higher. Raise the flag higher. Yeah, see? American flag. Not Mexican flag. We have the right flag this time. <laughs> we brought the right one with us. <laughs> so as Perry continues marching, Porter continues upriver. All right. And he soon reaches Fort Iturbide which is guarding the city from the riverbank. He sends two ships past it to begin shelling it from the rear, and he leads 60 of his sailors ashore to seize the fort. They grab the correct flag from the flag locker, and they raise the U.S. flags over the fort after they took it. And this is when Perry, leading his landing force, arrives, and they finish taking control of the city. So by the time Perry arrives, it's... Nine-tenths of the way done. Well, the fort's taken, but the city still needs to be taken. Oh, okay. So the, the most defensible position is now in the hands of the Americans, but the objective is not captured. Correct. I see, I see. At least until 1400. Well, what happens at 1400? They take the city. Oh. They took control. The city is theirs. Huzzah. Huzzah. And this was actually the last port on the Gulf Coast to be captured. And now they had control of all of them. The Colonel Governor, he withdraws further upstream, but leaves some guerrilla forces behind. Perry, he leaves a garrison in Tabasco. And unfortunately, Yellow Fever and the guerrillas just kept pounding them. So he finally decides to withdraw the garrison and maintain a blockade of the city. So that is the end of the Mexican-American War. 
Well, what this episode taught us. Always bring a little artillery with you. Always keep that flag flying high if you're charging en masse. And when in doubt, nail your flagpole to a church steeple. So, we have plenty of time left in the episode, so we're just going to move on. <laughs> That's fine by me. The next naval exercise, if you want to call it an exercise, is the bombardment of San Juan del Norte. This was a battle between the USS Cyan against the town of San Juan del Norte in Nicaragua. This is another short one. So this is July 13th, 1854, and this attack was in response to attempts by the independent government of Greytown to charge taxes and duties on the ships that were using it as a port to access Commodore Vanderbilt's Nicaragua route to California. There are, you know, other reasons, like the attacks that was attributed to them which damaged American property, and in one case, attacking the American consulate. Oh, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. So what they did was they pulled up to the town and bombarded it until it was completely destroyed. Ooh. Yeah. Attacking a consulate building is... Yeah. Never a good call. Yeah. So, of course, you can imagine there was outrage at the bombardment of this town. The United States refused to apologize for any damage or loss of life. Instead, they decided to avoid discussing the incident until President Pierce finally gave a official position six months later. Ah, so you could say, we don't talk about San Juan North. Day. We don't talk about that bombardment. No. Well, I mean, he does this one time. Oh, hi, Disney lawyer. No, that's just your cricket. <laughs> so when he does talk about it six months later, he gives a detailed and biased account of the bombardment. He did say that it would have been better if the mission could have been done without using force but he says quote the arrogant contumacy of the offenders rendered it impossible to avoid the alternative either to break up their establishment or to leave them impressed with the idea that they might preserve with impunity in a career of insolence and plunder in other words I think this says we either blow them up or they think they can get away with it it one of yeah a we didn't want to use the stick, but you forced the stick. And better to use the stick one time excessively than have to come back with the stick. Yeah. But that's the end of that one. Yeah. Just curious, do we know why? I mean, they, it's like, uh, effectively, I was going to say highway robbery, but piracy is piracy. But doing those e extortion deals... You know, if someone's greedy or wants to make a buck, I get it. But why'd they attack the consulate? That that never goes well. Because they're idiots? That yeah, works. 
So that brings us to a point in history called the Battle of Taiho Bay. Oh, where's that at? This is China. Oh. This is off of Hong Kong. This was a big naval battle which involved the British Royal Navy, the U.S. Navy, and Chinese pirates. Was this during the Opium Wars? This was in 1855. Yeah, this was during the Opium Wars. Fun fact, this was also the first time British and American forces did a joint operation. Well, let's see. It's been 40 years. I think we can move on past the whole burning the White House thing. Some of the older guys are probably still harboring resentment, but all the young ones are like, hey, let's drink. <laughs> so, in the Atlantic, with all these anti-piracy operations that were being done, pretty much there was no more piracy. But in the Asian waters and in the Pacific, it continued to thrive. Now, the Chinese and Japanese pirates, they really had a good time just fighting each other along the coastal region between China and Japan. So because of this, hundreds of pirate hideouts existed all over the Chinese coast. So this prompted Western naval forces to carry out anti-piracy operations when they started attacking Western naval supply vessels. So in September 1855, the pirates of Kulan seized four merchant vessels in the area around Hong Kong. And these were being escorted by the paddle steamer HMS Eaglet. So in response to this, the Royal Navy HMS Rattler was sent to rescue the merchantmen. They find the pirates in Kulan Harbor, but shallow water, that's very bad for deep draft vessels. Especially when your source of propulsion involves uh, putting a big old wheel, you know, probably a good 10, 15 feet below the waterline. Okay, so this is the HMS Rattler. This one actually had a screw propellered. Yeah. Like, wow. The actual prop. Before he... Yeah. It... This was the first British warship to have a screw propeller. And it's been argued, but they think this is the first warship in the world to have a screw propeller. That's pretty cool. But, of course, they also had sails. Well, as backup yeah, propulsion. Yeah, like back in this day and age, I don't think it wasn't until the um, ironclads, really, that they even toyed at the idea of completely abandoning sails for a ship. Yeah. So, because of the shallow water and the deep draft, they asked for assistance from the Eaglet and the USS Powhatan. Now, there's something interesting about the Powhatan. She was also a frigate with a screw propeller. Guys, guys, we had a moment. We had a brief moment where we could have made history. The first prop-driven ship versus prop-driven ship fight. <laughs> and you let the opportunity slip through your fingers. 
but we're friends now. Are we? They burned down the White House. 40 years ago. You just said that there were some old farts on those ships that likely remembered. Yeah, but there's a lot more young ones. So the Powhatan was of the East Indian Squadron and commanded by Commodore William J. McClutley. And the Rattler was commanded by Commodore William Fellows. The Rattler had 180 officers and crew, but we don't know how many people were on the Eaglet because originally this was a civilian vessel which was chartered for British service between 1855 and 1857 to tow British vessels through shallow water. Okay, so it wasn't made and built by the Royal Navy. It was a civilian ship that was subcontracted to. Right. But it is a paddle wheel which allows them to go in shallower water. So on August 4th, the Eaglet arrives at Taiho Bay. She arrived towing at least six different boats of different types. And these boats were filled with British and American sailors and Marines. And each boat was armed with a howitzer or a cannon. This is going to go very poorly for those pirates. <laughs> The British first spot a merchant junk, which appeared to be piecing out. So the Rattler and the Powhatan were sent to cut it off. So after this happened, the remaining British and American vessels, they see the pirate fleet, which had 14 large junks and 22 small ones. And they had about 1,500 pirates. And they had small cannons. They also see seven captured merchant ships. Most of these Chinese. So when the Chinese pirates see the approaching American and British forces, half of them decide, nope. And they start to leave. But the other half, they decide to engage. So they begin firing on the British and American forces very, very heavily. But most of the shots were not aimed very well. And they just went over the boats. So when the American and British forces get into range, they start returning fire. And immediately six enemy vessels go down. What were these ships made of? Paper mache, practically? No, it was wood. But that's the difference between accurate fire and pirate fire. Remember, this is pirates versus U.S. and U.K. military. I, I, I don't really have anything to say. You are absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> so now the range becomes close quarters. And the eaglet... Let's go the tow lines and go off to board all of the junks. 14 of these were taken after heavy resistance. And then they got bit by the fire bug and burned them. You know, that, that fire bug, it's awfully catchy. Oh, are you wanting to burn stuff? 
Oh, uh, uh, share the love of the fire bug with a certain bug in my vicinity at the moment. <laughs> He's going insane slowly. <laughs> what do you mean slowly? We aren't even through the episode yet, and I'm losing it completely. Hmm. So, the seven merchant ships that were there were liberated. Unfortunately, two of them were heavily damaged in the battle, and so... The fire cricket bug burned them as well. He's holding his breath. He's turning red. It's getting very contagious. <laughs> so, as a result of this battle, 14 of the large junks were destroyed. Six small ones were also destroyed. And 16 pirate vessels escaped. They estimate that 500 pirates were killed in action or they were drowned, or they were wounded. They took a thousand pirates prisoner. The American casualties were reported as six wounded and five dead. The British reported four dead and several wounded. So that was just a, a stomp, really. Yeah, the, the pirates were on the wrong side that day. I mean, they're usually on the wrong side. Yeah. So that will bring us to the first Fiji expedition. This was done in October 1855 during a civil war on the Fiji Islands. Hmm. This expedition is in response to a fire. This was on a house owned by an American agent named John Brown Williams, and it was hit by cannon fire. This was actually in 1849. Apparently, the Fijians were celebrating the 4th of July. That, that's what they say. Okay. Yeah, when cannonballs fell on the building. We were celebrating our freedom so hard, and we were so patriotic that day that cannonballs started raining from the sky. Then there was a second incident that happened in the same year as the expedition, so now we come up to 1855, when a, a another fire was set, and this interrupted John Williams's duties. So we're starting to have a theme here. They don't like John. <laughs> So then there is a third fire, and this destroys his store, and this also caused some Fijians to loot the place. Shoot me with cannonballs. Crap happens. Start a fire. I'm getting a little cross. Start another fire and loot my store. I'm calling in the Navy. Yup. And this is the USS John Adams under... Commander Edward B. Boutwell. He was sent in to monitor the unrest. And they and they landed on the shore on more than one occasion to protect American interests. So when Commander Boutwell talks to John, John's like, they keep f setting fire to my stuff. They keep shooting cannonballs at my stuff. They burned my store. He goes, and he goes to the king, King Kakobao, and demands $5,000 in compensation. 
What year is this? 1855. So 5K in 20... In 1855. In 2022 monies. Oh my goodness gracious. Yeah, that's not chump change. For, I mean... I probably would get him a new store. That's $170,273.56. And then he demanded an additional $38,000 for other claims of damages to other American interests. Well, that's the vaguest statement I've ever heard to ask for $1,294,079.08 in 2022 money. Yeah. Now, a deadline is given, and if they fail to pay, a landing party of marines and sailors are going to go to shore to capture the king in his village. You know, I know we're the U.S. Navy History Podcast, and then I hear about stuff like this where it's like, if it sounds like piracy and looks like piracy, there might be a little bit of piracy. Like, 5k for the store makes sense. 38 for damage to American interest. I mean, were there other incidents? Yeah. There were other incidents. They don't say what they are, but there are. Alright. Remember, I told you that he had to put ashore many times to protect American interests. They don't define what those interests are, but they, they do mention it. But the deadline comes and goes. And true to their word, Marines and sailors went ashore and captured the king. And what did the king have to say about all this? Well, he really didn't have much to say. Because after capturing them, they were on their way back. And Fijian warriors put up resistance, saying, You took our king. Bad you. And they kill a American and wound two others. Then a fierce battle ensues. And they eventually do rout the natives. But the king does escape. Hmm. And then there is a second expedition. And we'll get to that when we get to 1858. So more or less this... Fiji incident, the first one, was there was an American presence on Fiji. Locals, some of them had grievances with uh, the American presence on Fiji. Made those grievances known with uh, 19th century's favorite method, fire, or cannonballs. And then eventually the Americans showed up and like, hey, cut that out pay up for the damages done or we're really going to have a problem. And this ended with pretty much nothing really being resolved because the money wasn't paid and the uh, sovereign that we took in to talk to escaped. Well, there is also something else you're forgetting. There was a civil war on Fiji at the moment. That, that did escape my mind as I was doing the recap. Um... I'm not the most intimately familiar with the history of Fiji. I'll be honest. That's fine. This is the U.S. Navy History Podcast. So you will remain ignorant of that. (laughs) 
All right, so I think we have time for one more small one. And this is going to be the filibuster war. Okay, this is either going to be hilarious or terrible. This is a conflict between American troops stationed in Nicaragua that are filibustering and a coalition of Central American armies. Uh, okay. So, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm a little rusty on uh, my political science. Um, the filibuster is pretty much where you have the floor and you will not concede the floor and essentially just keep talking around in circles in order to postpone a vote, usually. Correct? In American politics? What is it militarily? Because that's the only filibuster I know. This is someone who engages in an unauthorized military expedition into a foreign country or territory to foster or support a political revolution or succession. Oh, so false flag? This is what the NSA does all the time. So maybe not necessarily a false flag op, but a deniable assets or, you know, we didn't know they were there. They were not under orders. It's a rogue element. Exactly, it's a rogue element. So, this is 1854, and a civil war erupts in Nicaragua between the Legitimist Party and the Democratic Party. The Democrats, they sought military support from Walker. He decided to circumvent U.S. neutrality laws and get a contract from the president, Castillon, to bring as many as 300 quote-unquote colonists to Nicaragua. <laughs> hey there, Farmer Jim. What do you got there? Farmer tools? Looks like a rifle and a cannon in your barn. Farming mm -hmm. tools. So, Walker sails from San Francisco on May 3rd with about 60 men. And when he gets there, he is reinforced by about 170 locals and about 100 other Americans. So, with President Castellon's permission, he, Walker, attacks the town of Rivas near the trans isthmian route now he is driven off but he does not inflict heavy casualties at all he pretty much says hi pow pow bye so on september 4th walker defeats the legitimist army at the battle of la virgin okay and then he continues on, and on October 13th, he conquers the capital of Granada and takes control of the country. So, initially, since he is commander of the army, Walker rules Nicaragua through a puppet, President Patricio Rivas. And then the U.S. President, Franklin Pierce, he then recognizes Walker's regime as legitimate government of Nicaragua on May 20th, 1856. Oh. Oh, no. That's, that's not great. 
Yeah. That's... Oh. So, Walker's taking over a country now. And he cannot keep his mouth shut. What was he saying? I have to know. While I don't know exactly what he said, his talk was scaring the crap out of his neighbors because they thought he was talking about further military conquests in Central America. Oh no, this this is not going to go well for him, is it? So the Costa Rican president, Juan Rafael Mora, he decides, you know what? I'm not going to do nothing diplomatic with you. You and me, we're at war. <laughs> I don't even acknowledge the legitimacy of your government, most likely. So Walker sends a Colonel Scheslinger to pre-invade Costa Rica. He's like, oh, war? Well, guess what? I'm already in there. But his forces were defeated in the Battle of Santa Rosa in March of 1856. Now, Vanderbilt, you know that name, right? That name rings a bell. I'm not sure why, but I'm sure you're going to remind me. Richest man in America at the time? That would do it. Yeah. He financed and trained a military coalition of the states around Costa Rica and put Costa Rica in charge. And he also worked to prevent men and supplies to reach Walker. He also said, hey, if you guys defect from Walker's army, I'm going to give you money and I'm going to send you back to the U.S., so, in April 1856, Costa Rican troops and American mercenaries, supported by Vanderbilt, they invade Walker's country, and they fight the Second Battle of Rivas. Then they, they beat him. So, while I'm glad to hear that I don't know why the richest man in America was effectively hiring mercenaries to stop this, you know, let's call it what it is, illegal foreign occupation. Why did he have a vested interest in, uh, you know, keeping Nicaragua's sovereignty and or Costa Rica's? Okay, I'm sorry, say that. I should question again? <laughs> I think, I think, uh, I think the cricket, my head up. Okay, yeah, I, yeah, no, Christopher's gotta go, folks. I'm sorry, I know, I, I'm sure he's gonna becoming popular, but I don't think he's gonna be making it to the next episode. Um, okay, so, Mr. Vanderbilt. Yes. Richest man in America. Yes. Essentially raised a mercenary army to help defend Costa Rica and oust Walker. Yes. An American Richie Rich guy. Do we know yes. why he had a vested interest in essentially helping maintain Costa Rica's sovereignty and then, you know, getting rid of the illegitimate government? Because rich American and wanting to help former colonized nations isn't something I'm used to hearing in the same sentence for the 19th century. More than likely, there was profit in him for it. Maybe he had a supply line down there that was being interrupted because of this crap. All right. But no, I don't know why 
he decided to throw money at the problem. Because I'm used to them throwing money... I'm used to hearing folks throw money at a problem on Walker's side. Yeah. So, now the war's over. Costa Rica continues to be free. Walker, no longer a military dictator. He is now president because he won an election, uncontested, in July. I mean, is it really an election if you don't have any opponents to run against? It's uncontested. He didn't stop people from contesting. Just nobody wanted to. Because look at the wonderful job he's done so far. Yeah, let's see. He uh, came in. He made himself the boss. He got war declared on us. Yeah. And then immediately launched an Americanization program. He declares English an official language and reorganizes the currency and fiscal policy to encourage immigration from the United States. Well, I'm sure that plenty of, uh... I have no clue where I was going with that. I, it just, it, <laughs> I don't like this guy at all, okay? I'll, I'll just be honest. I have a very strong bias against this Walker fella. Well, on May 1st, 1857, almost a year later, he surrenders himself to Commodore Charles Henry Davies of the United States Navy. And that's the only reason why we're covering this. And he was repatriated. Now, once he gets to New York City, he was greeted as a hero. Dang it, 19th century America, come on! But then he alienated public opinion because he decided to blame his defeat to Costa Rica on the U.S. Navy. I'm sorry, folks, my brain just broke a little because, um... Until about 15 seconds ago, we weren't even mentioned. I know. And I'm looking, but I don't believe there were any naval battles. I, I was going to say, like, did, did we miss something? Or, or is he blaming the lack of the United States Navy showing up to back up his illegitimate claim? And frankly, a legal war as the reason he lost. The U.S. Navy wouldn't back me up, so it's their fault. Okay, so, no naval battles. And, but I did find out Vanderbilt was in it because of a major trade route between South America and New York City. It goes right through Nicaragua. Pretty much before the days of the Panama Canal, you know. What? Yeah. Okay. So, maybe that's why he decided to blame it on the Navy? But, I mean, this guy's a complete and utter idiot anyway, so... So, that's the filibuster war. Thanks, I hate it. You're welcome. So, that, my friend, is where we're going to leave it for today. Do you or your cricket have anything you would like to add to the conversation? Well, folks, um, if you would like to leave a comment... Tell us what you think of the show. We know you guys are out there. We'd love to hear it. And if you'd like to reach out to us, you can do so on Twitter at USN History Pod. Or you can email us at the US Navy History. No, there is no the. There's no the. And you know that, Captain. 
And I was going to say the email, but my brain blocked. And we're going to erase this past 10 seconds. He's weighing his options, folks. <laughs> He's thinking about erasing this embarrassment. You can email us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Now, if you guys need me, I have a Zippo, I have a can of Axe body spray, and I'm about to go cricket hunting. Fair winds and following seas, everybody. Catch you next time. <laughs> Burn! Burn! U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 2-1-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-